I'm Candice. I'm 31. I live in Seattle, Washington, and I'm Korean American. With which type of Christianity or denomination do you identify? Oh, that's a hard one. Probably most closest to non-denominational, but I have come out of evangelicalism, so I don't identify with any of them. But so sort of non-denominational-ish, evangelical-ish Protestant. Yeah, ish. If even that, like I really... I don't know if that's going to help you, but... That's fine. That's fine. Deconstructing is what they call it. Welcome to Depolarize, the podcast where we try and find common ground at the nexus of faith, politics, and psychology. I'm Dan Koch. Our co-host, Ellen Morrow, and her husband, Cole, have had a bunch of travel recently, so she's taking a week off. Today's episode is actually mostly just one interview with Candace Clem, one of our non-white Christian voters. And with that sort of simple episode format, this is a bit more like first season of Depolarize. So she was interviewed as one of those five non-white Christians, but despite my best efforts to just get some good answers out of her, she started asking me a bunch of questions. And we just kind of went along, and if you know me, you know that I have a hard time remaining silent in general, even more so when someone's asking me about stuff that I'm really interested in. And so I went with the flow, and what came out was just this delightful conversation that kind of zigged and zagged a bit. Um, We will hear from interjections occasionally other people that I've interviewed, um, experts basically, when it seems helpful, and I'll introduce them as we go so that you won't be lost, but let's just dive into this chat with Candace. We're going to start by hearing when she knew she could not vote for Donald Trump. I knew pretty early on I wasn't going to vote for him. Actually, I, I knew right away that I wouldn't. I felt like he was running Republican because he thought that those were the people that he could actually convince to vote for him. I don't know if he's really Republican. Like, I don't think he shares the same values as a lot of Republican people do. If a Christian Trump voter said to you, for the sake of this conversation, yeah, imagine they're a white evangelical or some other kind of evangelical Christian saying, what's the big deal? How come people are up in arms about this? Of course they voted for Trump. Yeah. What would you say? Man, and this is the part where I feel like I'm not well-spoken enough because I just go emotional. The emotions just kind of come into my stomach. Well, expre- yeah, so what? <laughs> what is it that you want to express? And then you can also say why you wouldn't say that. That's fine. And this is all stuff that I have only recently started talking about. Great. Because I have been super afraid to cause any issues with it. So it was easier for me to be apathetic about it than to actually think through it. So this is a good question for me. Number one, the way that he talks about black people and women and immigrants is disgusting. I mean, even like the whole thing with building the wall with Mexico, gross. Like my parents were immigrants. My friend's parents are immigrants. If we block people out, then what are what are people going to do? The reason people come over here is to have a better life for their generation, not even just for them. It would have been so much easier for my parents to stay in Korea where they know the language, where they know the location, they know the culture, they know the family. They don't come here for them. They come here for their next generation and the generations after that. If someone is willing to make that journey to sacrifice their career, like if my parents stayed in in Korea, dude, they would have had better jobs than coming here and working as a janitor and at a freaking post office. Like they sacrificed it. They came here and and all those families that want to come over, all those parents that want to come over with their children, they should not be kicked out or locked out. Like they should be welcomed here. It should be a safe place. Candace mentions a conversation she had with Derek Miner at the Bad Christian Conference, which we were both participants in January. And Derek is an African-American Christian hip hop artist. I was trying to get my head around why is it different for African-Americans versus Asians? And the one thing he said was he's like, the reason you guys don't get so much crap like we do is because they believe that you add to this society because you come here and you're smart 
you're educated, whatever, you know, like, I mean, Asians are stereotyped to work hard, get straight A's, blah, blah, blah. You were, though, the best violinist in the orchestra. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. I was. I'm so saying, I mean, but it's true. That. Yeah. And, and I don't you tell me if it was like this in American culture, but. Asian culture, yeah, like you do your best. And the kids that didn't do their best, like they were kind of known as the black sheep. But yeah, I mean, and it's true. That's what we're known as. We're known as people who will come and make you more money. And yeah, I don't, I mean, I can't speak to growing up Asian, but I did grow up in the Bay Area, California. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of Asian friends. And, you know, my, I think my stereotypical view was, yeah, my Asian friends are smart. Their parents are very hard on them to mm -hmm. work really hard at school mm -hmm. and extracurricular activities. And so yep. they get high marks. Yep. You know, that's, that would be my sort of, that was my naive takeaway of it as a kid growing up. But what do you think that is? Like I, so when I hear that and that is how our life was, but don't you think it's because the parents sacrificed a lot to get here? I think that's, I mean, I'm no expert on this, but I've interviewed a few people who have some insight into personality types and cultural differences. Mm -hmm. My impression is that it is a combination of that fact. And and that shows up in the data. Um, Charles Hirschman from UW, when I interviewed him, he talked about how the first generation immigrants, so the, their children, do outperform their uh, native peers mm -hmm. in the States. That's, that's fact. And then another thing too is, at least for Asian culture, is um, I think there are differences in, in culture. There are sort of more conservative cultures and more liberal cultures. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, it's harder to imagine like a Swedish family coming over and the parents being like, you must succeed. Do not dishonor the family. Like Sweden is not as much of an honor-based, mm -hmm. honor code society as Korea is yeah. or Japan. So some of it is that too. Mm -hmm. That's my understanding. But again, I'm no expert. Yeah. But you know who is an expert? Dr. Charles Hirschman, who I just mentioned. He's a professor at the University of Washington, but more than that, he is a world-leading expert on all kinds of population studies. For instance, he was in charge of the official census of the country of Vietnam, and he's a former president of the Population Association of America, and the Department of Homeland Security hires him as a consultant. I, I say all this just to let you know he's incredibly qualified to talk about this stuff, and here is Dr. Hirschman talking about some of what Candace was just touching on. The foreign-born are overrepresented in almost all areas of excellence in American society. In other words, if you look at the American scientists who win Nobel Prizes, immigrants are overrepresented. If you look at those who are members of honorific groups, if you look at patenting, in technology and science yeah. and medicine, immigrants, they have a very heavy footprint. They, they, they punch above their weight, as they say, yeah. in terms of their representation, because the ones who come here are very determined. You know, the people who are normal often stay at home. Right. <laughs> it's just like you can probably think of your native-born friends. Some of them have branched off and gone to distant places to make their fortune. And that's, that's what migrants do. And that's often the way immigrants are. They push their children, you know, because they're struggling, they're striving. And so the children of their immigrants try a little bit harder in school. And if you ask most kids who are in school and they look at the kids who come there who don't speak English, within a few years, most of them are, you know, doing pretty good in school. So uh, that wouldn't happen right away, especially with a language barrier, but give them four or five years well, in the school system. Just look at spelling bees. I don't know if you've, okay. if you've noticed in the National Spelling Bees for the last 20 years. I'm not uh, a huge spelling bee aficionado, they, but... The children from India have dominated National Spelling Bees for the last 20 years. Okay. Um, science fairs. I don't know if you've ever been to a high school science fair in recent years. Disproportionately, look at the high school orchestra. You know, the ones who are playing, you know, the violins and the other yeah. string instruments and so on. Disproportionately... The children of foreign-born parents as well. You know, yeah. So they're they're really you know pushing the envelope in terms of doing this. It's not because they're smarter than anybody else, but they just realize that um, if they're going to make it in American society, that no, no one's going to hand it to them. Remember the story Candace told two weeks ago about being in the orchestra, wanting to be in the choir, being pushed by her mother, etc.? Well, to make an even clearer connection to Candace's own heritage, here's another bit from Dr. Hirschman about Asian immigrants in particular. 
Many of the Asian immigrants, in particular, work in the high tech sector. So yeah. they're, you know, if you go to Microsoft, you go to Silicon Valley, you go to a university, you go to a research lab, uh, you go to your doctor's office. <laughs> you yeah. know, a lot of times, um, Asian immigrants are playing very, very critical roles. Um, yeah. I mean, at the university, a lot of the professors are from Asia, from Latin America as well, and Europe as well. And many of our students are. Many of the students, if you go to the, particularly the, something like the College of engineering or uh, the medical sciences. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the majority of their PhD students are from other countries. They come here sometimes to study and then go back. Sometimes they come here and they're so good, you know, we, we, we compete with other employers to keep them here. In a few minutes, we're going to go back to Candace and focus on another issue she's faced, which is the shame culture that we might say is more predominant in Asian cultures than Western European ones certainly more predominant than in consumeristic American culture. But I want to linger here with Dr. Hirschman just a bit more and focus on some of the underlying forces that make sense of this economic reality we find ourselves in. And this relates back to Candace's chat with Derek Minor, right? Because Derek comes from a native population of African-Americans. And African-Americans have been here since pretty much the beginning, even though they're here because we brought them here. Whereas Candace is an Asian American, and Asian immigration is actually the largest sector of ongoing immigration to the States, higher than Latin American immigration, and certainly higher than African migration. And what we see with immigrant communities, as we'll hear from Dr. Hirschman, is that the children of immigrants, on average, outperform their native peers. And this might be why Asian Americans are seen, as Candace mentioned, as being a kind of net positive for American culture. So when immigrants arrive, they work in the American economy, and by and large, they pay taxes because the taxes, you know, are evident when they when they buy goods and services. Most of them work, and uh, even if they're here uh, without papers, their wages are deducted for Social Security and taxes and so on. Right. So, so they they're pay paying it. sales tax, and if they're hired by Dole, Dole is paying payroll taxes, exactly. whether or not they have papers. Right. Right. Okay. You know, people who do gardening at my house, at your house, they care for your children. Children, they for the record, for we don't. I don't have a gardener. Okay, well, <laughs> not yet. Well, well, but, but some. Well, you may not have a gardener, but a lot of times you might have to have your trees trimmed right, <laughs> in sure. your yard, or hedges worked, or other kinds of things. Those are disproportionately. So those services are manned sure. by immigrants. Elder care. You know, nursing yeah. homes, child care, disproportionately nannies coming from other kinds of countries. So they provide a whole range of services. But on average, there's a, there's the highly skilled immigrant population, but there's also a lot who are at the low wage economy. Because of their lower wages, they pay less in taxes than the average native born American. They also have children and their children. I'm going to focus on education because that's the largest single source of expenditure that we make upon Public schools. Mo- most, most people in general. Uh, the big drivers of the American social support network is healthcare and education. Those are the two big ones. Even if you pay for these yourself, you're still being subsidized one way or another in both of these these markets by by various arms of government. But the big one for immigrants would be education. And they don't have large families, but they have larger families than the native-born population do. So if you calculated in 2016, we took all the taxes paid by immigrants, and then we counted all the benefits that they're receiving, including the average value of schools that their children receiving education, okay. it turns out that actually they're getting more benefits, primarily education, than taxes that they're putting into the system. Right. But let's, for a moment, let's sort of think about this long term. <clears throat> when you consider the children of immigrants, all the children of immigrants do better than their parents do educationally, which means that they wind up in higher paying jobs, which is wind up paying more in taxes than the average child of a native born person does. So if we take... Oh, the- you're, not, you're not saying they end up paying more in taxes than their parents, they end up paying more in taxes than me then, born here. Yeah, right. I mean, if we just On take, average, yeah. Yes. You know, if we take the children of the native born versus the children of immigrants, the children of the native born, on average, are going to pay less in taxes than the children of the foreign born, by and large, because they're going to go into higher paying occupations. And I don't know if I should share this point because I don't know who's going to hear it, but... Like it even got so, and I I think I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It even got so bad that when my parents got divorced and my mom, I think, ended up meeting a white guy, which, hello, 
I totally get why she hooked up with a white guy. You're married to one, yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's multiple reasons. But like when all of that was going down and they were getting divorced and separating, like it was a big deal in the family. Like you're not honoring our name. And it got so bad to the fact that even like my grandpa, who is like the most gentle, soft-spoken, but patriarch of the family, he told her to freaking move out of the city. To get physical distance so that the shame would not sort of spread physically. Yeah. Wow. Like you're humiliating us. You need to leave. That feels different to me. I mean, there there may be some sort of like, I don't know, Ivy League type families who think that way, but that feels alien. Yeah. That kind of a sentiment. And uh, and it's weird to me too, because that's not Jesus. That's not gracious. And I've seen my family be Jesus and gracious. So it, it was a little bit out of like, what the hell? Really? Like, why would that happen? You know? Well, I mean, one way you might think about that is just, look, whatever culture you're, you happen to be in, mm-hmm. it's going to have some leanings that are good and some leanings that are bad. Mm-hmm. And in a difficult situation, you might find yourself sort of naturally inclined toward some of those bad leanings mm-hmm. that you might have the wherewithal to resist when things are going better. So for instance, perhaps your grandpa in that moment of, of deep family humiliation, he leaned into that and, and he will regret that. Yeah. But also it might be true that a bunch of evangelicals in Alabama, they go vote for Roy Moore Mm -hmm. because of the cultural moment, because they're afraid of national security and terrorism Mm -hmm. and, and the Democrats or whatever. I mean, you know, we all sort of have, ways that we might go that are unhealthy right that we don't choose that are a part of our culture Mm -hmm. so when i in an unhealthy moment i consume things i go shopping you know i get milkshakes and burgers (laughs) and i drink whatever like i'm a i'm a white american consumer yeah with means right so that's what i do and to be fair, I am a Korean American consumer. <laughs> right. uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what else yeah. about being. I don't really. That's that's the weird thing about being white. Yeah. I don't really know what it means to be white. It's almost like um, fish not knowing what water is. Mm-hmm. Like water is just air. Yeah. And Do that's you feel... what's interesting about these conversations. Well, so I've had these conversations with some of my friends. Like I'll say things like, "I don't want to go make money for another rich white guy." You know, and then my other friend would be like, dude, you're married to a rich white guy. I'm like, (laughs) that's true. There's an eloquent way to do it. And I don't know how the white friends are trying to understand where we're coming from. Does it come off super intense like that? Like, not to me. No, I mean, also, I did ask you if I could interview you for my podcast. So I might, (laughs) I don't know, but I think, no, I, my feeling is that if someone is asking you at at least thoughtful questions, even Mm -hmm. if they're hard, Mm -hmm. then they, I mean, I would imagine they want to know and they want to talk about it and and they anticipate that it might be complicated. Maybe they don't know what they're getting into. That's possible. I think the problem though, is that they always feel like loaded questions instead of thoughtful questions, like with already an agenda behind it. So you don't feel when when a lot of your white friends ask you questions about being Korean, you don't get the impression that they're seeking genuine understanding. Rather, maybe are they seeking to justify something and get you to be their Asian friend who stamps it for approval? <laughs> yeah, sometimes it does feel like that. Did Trump's election... Yeah make you or anyone in your life fear for your safety or livelihood? Not here. And maybe maybe less so only because I'm, you know, so ingrained in white culture. One of my best friends, she put her kid in the most, like, one of the most diverse, high Ethiopian um, percentile schools, elementary schools. It's, like, right in the middle of the city. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people will, like, transfer them out and have them go to either Queen Anne or a different different school right, or the white you know parents with means get their kids into more white schools. Yeah. Yeah. So her daughter is friends with like the, I think it was like this little Mexican girl or it was and I remember her saying 
after something happened, like either Trump got elected or he passed something and she was telling us like her best friend wasn't in school for like two weeks and they had to like track him down, try to figure out, did he get deported back? What's going on? And so the girls are in tears. Her her daughter's sad. Her My friend's sad because she's just like, did they send them back? And I think they ended up tracking them down and I think they were okay. But that's the kind of stuff that I didn't experience personally. But I know that my friend who was in Seattle did experience. How have your personal interactions been with Trump supporters oh within your own community it, since the election? It's really hard. Why is it hard? It almost feels like a divide, you know, like it almost feels like it's really hard to continue. And maybe this falls into the evangelicalism as well. Trump evangelical to me are parallel. Sounds like it. Yeah. And so it's been really hard to keep the friends enough that I've tried to break up with a few of them. <laughs> You've tried to break up with friends. Yeah. Has it worked? No. They keep coming back or you keep coming back? I, like I'm thinking of one friend in particular. I tried to break up with her. She actually didn't let me. And maybe that's because she's a good friend, you know, because she was basically like, we've done lo- too much life together. I got to say, I'm with your friend on this one, Candace. I don't think yeah. we should be ending relationships over politics and social differences if we can at all avoid it. But what about spirituality? No, same thing. And I think that's wise. <laughs> I, I'm, glad to, I'm glad to hear I gave a convincing argument. No, it's wise. I just wise. simply said, yeah. no. No, it's true. And one thing that, you know, that came up in that conversation was she was specifically like, you know, it was it's actually a blessing to be able to come together and talk about different viewpoints so that we can actually hear each other. And I, but I think that the reason that it's hard for me to do that is it's hard to actually do that. It's so hard. Like there's a lot of eye rolls going on. There's a lot of condescending tones going on. And to me, I'm just like, some of that's, some of that's okay, but I can't do it all the time. Yeah. I mean, it might take more effort to keep some of those friendships going in times like this. It might take some intentionality to say, we're going to, we're going to leave this aside tonight and we're just going to enjoy ourselves or we're going to go get some drinks and we're going to we're going to dig in and we're going to try and both be humble here and make some progress. Ne- neither of which are Oof. as easy yeah. as just hang with people who are just in your tribe that just <laughs> like you. But but my question and I hear you. I hear you. We shouldn't be ending relationships through it. We shouldn't be separating. But why not? I have a whole podcast that answers that question. <laughs> but if I was going to be concise, do you want the spiritual answer or the psychological answer? I want... You want both? I want spiritual first and then psychological. Okay. The spiritual answer is that Paul says in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, free nor slave. Yeah. Um, ideological and identity differences do not separate Christians in God's eyes. Yeah. And therefore they ought... There's something that God sees about us that we have a hard time seeing in ourselves and so if we just give up and say, well, too different, see ya, <laughs> then we are, we're sort of selling ourselves short on something that God knows about us that we can't see ourselves. Okay. That's a spiritual answer. The psychological answer is our country has become more polarized mm-hmm. and people who are more polarized are less mentally balanced and healthy. Um, the, the proportion of people who have said, you know, if they're Republicans who said, I wouldn't want my son or daughter to marry a Democrat or Democrats who say, I wouldn't want my son or daughter to marry a Republican has like tripled or quadrupled in the last 40 years. That's not a good recipe for a civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, political views should not be that determinative. They should not be that big a part of our identity. Um, you and your friend share, just, does your friend have kids? Right. So you're both mothers you uh, you live in the same city, you worship the same God, even if you have really different ideas about what that God is like, and you've lived all this life together. I'm sure you have inside jokes, you have memories together, and to lose all that over political leaning or whatever is just a tragedy, spiritually and psychologically. Are you convinced by that? I, you know, I was convinced by the, your 
Paul answer. Can always just throw scripture at a Christian. Yeah. yeah. That works. No, and that makes sense. Um, but I also think that there is a healthy way to move on from a season. And there's no reason that we have to be super close with the same people Totally. Throughout but the thing. You there's know? a difference between, I guess I don't know what you mean by breaking up with. I'm yeah. assuming you mean ending a friendship. It might be that you don't spend as much time with certain people for certain periods. That's fine. But I mean, yeah. so this is over, you know, yeah. I'm also, I'm also talking about unfriending people on Facebook, losing, losing their voice, their input into your life. I mean, this just puts us into more and more of a bubble. Right. And that's not good. That that I agree with. Yes. Yeah. Because if we're only surrounded by the people that we agree with. Yeah, exactly. It is a total bubble. And I am guilty of that. I'm like, I don't want to see your I'm, gu- I'm guilty of it too. I mean, I we've all wanna... done it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I do. You did convince me we shouldn't be breaking up over this, but it's happening. Yeah. Um, And I mean, friends are breaking up, families are getting messy and divided. There's people not going to their freaking in-laws house because they can't handle it. Yeah. There's people being uninvited to the vacation house because of politics. Like it's disgusting. Um, and I totally do it too. So then the answer to yeah. that is surely not more breaking up. It's the opposite. More getting together. Yes. Well, and you know what? I will say this. You're right. And I do hear you. And Something that I learned this weekend, too, was that no matter what issue it is, homosexuality, abortion, Black Lives Matter, whatever, immigrants, anything, there has to be a relationship to even start to hear or understand. And it's crazy how that connection is the thing that gets people continue thinking whether, okay, is this still what I believe? Is this is what I believe? Does it sit right with me anymore? Like, it's crazy how the relationship part is the, I feel like the single most important thing. Totally. And if a person that you care about says something that in the moment f- might feel harsh, mm-hmm. oftentimes you're walking around later that day or the next day and you think of it again, and you might have vehemently disagreed with them in the moment. But it doesn't mean that they didn't, speak into your mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've definitely had times where I go, I think she was right actually about that. <laughs> and I couldn't hear it at the time. Yeah. And maybe a year later I go, oh, you know, my friend said that. And now here's some other evidence for that. Mm-hmm. And if I had never heard that from my friend, I'd be less likely to change mm-hmm. my mind. Right. Yeah. That's just how we work. Yeah. We change our minds in increments mm-hmm. in like a, a web kind of a way. I want to tell you guys something about Depolarize. It costs me money to make it. And I'm not talking about the hours that I put in finding guests, booking guests, interviewing guests, looking over and highlighting the transcripts, organizing the highlighted quotes into topics, writing the episodes and recording the episodes. Not talking about that. All of that is pro bono. I mean just the cost of podcast hosting and the pretty basic amount of editing help that I pay our mixing engineer, Chris, Those two items end up costing about $100 or $200 more than Patreon brings in each month. Although just this morning, I saw that a guy named John Penner pledged $20 a month. So I guess I should say $80 to $180 more per month than the show costs. Uh, Thank you, John. Now, regardless, if you think that this state of affairs is not how it ought to be, there's good news. You can donate as little as $3 a month to the Patreon campaign, and you can get bonus content in the process, which basically tends to be particularly interesting full-length interviews that do not air on the podcast feed. But the main thing, of course, that you get is satisfaction for having supported something that you think is valuable. So if you want to do this, you can go to depolarizedpodcast.com and click become a patron, or you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Again, it's only three bucks a month, starting at three bucks a month. You can give more if you want, and you get extra content, and you help me make this show. Now, back to what Candace and I were chatting about, this idea of connection with people 
as the type of thing that actually changes minds. This is something that I also asked Jason Brooks about. You remember him as one of our non-white Christian voters. He's the one who grew up in Watts, but he also studied education at Harvard and got his master's there. When I worked at the Macaulay School in Chattanooga, Tennessee, I was in charge of a dorm or in charge of a boarding students. And this kid came from about the most different background as I, as I could have. I mean, he came from the sticks of Mississippi and literally had never seen a black person who did not serve him. And, and we would watch Monday Night Football. And we, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I did not like this kid. And he, he took every opportunity to uh, remind me of Mississippi's history and how the South would rise again and how the war of northern aggression had disenfranchised the South. I, I mean, I'm coming from California, right? So, I, I mean, like, I, I thought our baseline was that slavery was wrong, right? And this kid was like, yeah, nah, man, y'all, y'all came and took our way of life. There's all sorts of complicated power dynamics where I'm the teacher, the authority figure, and this kid, but he's also you know, a rich white kid from Mississippi. And then like, so the, the, it gets, it, it gets messy back and forth. But again, just spending time with this kid over Monday night football. Uh, he turned out over four years to be one of my, one of my favorite kids ever uh, because, because of the time we spent together. And how much time did that take though for, oh for that relationship to build and for his mind to open or whatever? For, for hours, 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 right? I mean, years. And it, and it wasn't some sort of Pollyanna happy ending where he, you know, was now this wildly enlightened da-da-da-da. But at the end of the day, he still held the sum of his stuff that I disagreed with, profoundly disagreed with. Uh, but I love that kid, you know. Uh, yeah, and after four years, you'd, you'd made enough progress with each other that you could have a loving friendship. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He pushed me in great directions on gun rights, right? So like growing up in LA, I had never seen a gun. I still haven't seen a gun do a good thing. I've only seen it, seen guns hurt people. Uh, but he gave me accounts of growing up in Mississippi and growing up in the country. And you have a, a ravenous bobcat or a bob or a wolf or a coyote that has rabies. Like a gun is the only tool that's going to keep you safe. And like, on your bobcat, you need a gun. Uh, so he helped open my mind to like, oh yeah, we can't just ban all guns. That, that can't, I can't be just as reactive. When we talk about, uh, oh, we're talking past each other, there's a documented neuropsychological phenomenon where I get more entrenched when you come at me harder with facts. And it, it, it creates an adversarial dyna- dynamic. But we also know that through storytelling, and this is why every culture across human history has had stories and storytellers and ways of communicating stories of identity and myth and belonging. And it's much harder for people to reject a story that has happened to you, right? It's harder for me to say, if you say, hey, when I was a little kid, you know, I fell and skinned my knee and it hurt really bad. And my dad called me a pussy. And that hurts me still. Knowing and hearing that story and empathizing with you makes it much harder for me just to dismiss and reject you and where you're coming from. And it makes me consider in a way um, that I wouldn't your story. So if you just told me, hey, just don't call kids pussies because it hurts them. No, I can think of all the cases where that doesn't hurt. You know, somebody called me a pussy. It didn't it didn't it didn't it didn't affect me. I'm fine. Why should I change it? But your story adds context to a documented fact that if you call people names that are pejorative, it hurts them. We're gregarious pack animals that move around in packs. And and the ones, some of the ways that we make sense of our identity is through attaching our identity to an overarching narrative. Cognitively, our brains and our our senses receive so much information uh, that we are quickly overloaded. You can only focus on one thing at a time, and your your brain is actively not focusing on the things in your peripheral vision. So, by definition, I can't I can't process all the information that I'm getting at a time, which is why our eyes have adapted to blur out all these other things. What is the one thing that you most wish Trump voters understood about you or about maybe your community or Korean Christians who, you know, or Asian American Christians or. Well, the thing is, there's a lot of Asian American people that voted for Trump. Right. There is. Yeah. Um, So are we talking about what, what do I wish they would understand or like white Midwest people understand? Let's start with this one. There was a, a decent chunk of Asian American Christians who voted for Trump. 
is there something that you'd like them to understand about you or about younger or more liberal Asian American Christians? And I probably am wrong, but here's my assumption. I feel like the people that voted for him in Asian American culture voted for him because they always vote right, number one. I think another reason is because they work their asses off. They don't want to have to pay more taxes to help support other people because that is what Asian people are known for. They work their asses off. I think maybe what I would want to communicate to them is I understand you. I get it. I know why you vote that way. You vote for morality, A, and you because you've worked hard to get to where you're at. And I also feel like my white friends who voted that way are also in kind of the same boat, morality and... Yeah, I was going to say these yeah. answers are starting to blur together yeah. in a way that I like. So what do you say to a voter oh, like that, whether they're Asian or white, yeah. if it's because of they're voting their morals, they feel like, and they're voting because they've worked hard and they yeah. don't want to their government taking their money. What I would say is that God is really fucking gracious and there is plenty. There is plenty to be gifted. If if the reason is politically because I don't want to have to pay more taxes, I want to, you know, like benefit from voting right, although I understand that there is so much more. Like there is so much more to be given that can be given. Like, and I, and I don't want to go super towards like prosperity gospel, right? Um, but in a sense, I do. Like, I honestly do believe that when you help more people, like, I think you will be blessed in some other way. And if money is really the issue, we don't have to be rich in money. Like, yes, money's easy. Money is helpful. But like, there's so many other ways to be rich. It's okay. It's okay to help the underprivileged. Like, it's okay. Like, even Jesus, Jesus helped the underprivileged. And and then that also swings to, like, who was Jesus? He was the one that was flipping tables with, like, pissed at the people who are super judgy, right? And so then it goes into the morality aspect of if you voted Trump because of morals, because, because of the gay issue, because of the abortion issue, we can't change people. It's not our job. And I think it's going to happen. People are going to be gay and there's going to be abortions no matter what we do to try to stop that. And I think that if they got into a relationship with someone who has had an abortion or is walking through abortion or wanted an abortion, if there was a relationship there, I think it would be different. Same with homosexuality, you know, like remember when, um, remember when, what's his face? What's his face? Remember when Obama came and started might be talking. the first person to ever say oh. what's his face and then say <laughs> Obama. Remember when he talked about like, hey, the reason I'm changing this policy about gay marriage is because he has friends and he like sat down with them and had a conversation with them. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's no way that his yeah. mind changed when it was politically expedient for his mind to change. I yeah. mean, I'm not, I'm an Obama fan, but I'm not gullible enough to believe yeah. that. But don't you think that that's the reason? I mean, I feel like it helps, though. Like well, he was in a relationship. People, that's how most people change their mind on it. That probably happened to him 20 years earlier. Yeah. He just didn't feel like he could say it. Right. I mean, I would guess. Where are you at with all that? I'm asking the questions, Candace. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about that yeah. over beer. Okay. What about white Christians? Yeah. What do you wish that they understood about the non-white church? Which you either could mean... Asian American churches or just yeah, yeah, yeah. non-white members of the global church or American church. America, you are not the best thing that has ever happened to this earth. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Unpack that a little bit. Uh, I think there's just an elitist thing that we all buy into. Like America's the best. Make America great. Like, but You think that it's mostly white people who buy into that? Well, that's a good challenging question. No, because we all want to be here and we all want to be privileged as well. There's things happening outside of our little Christian bubble that is fantastic. I feel like the way that people worship, the way that they come together. One of my really good Asian friends, she goes to the black church. And <laughs> I should be interviewing her. Oh, my God. She's the best. And when I ask her about it, I'm like, what's it like? She's like, it's just fun. It's just great. Like, it's just loud. They're singing. And it looks a lot different than the white churches that we go to. But it blesses people, you know, like the Holy Spirit shows up. Would it be fair to say 
you're cautioning against a kind of cultural elitism to maybe that white Christians prioritize white culture, which has nothing to do with their Christianity, mm. just their whiteness. I'm afraid to say yes. Why are you afraid to say yes to that? Because I've played into it. But you're looking at me like, yes, that's what I mean. I think a lot of people have felt this way, have have had the same thought. Um, oh, man. And I, and I want to be careful because there's so many more intelligent, well-spoken Asian American people who can just like actually come on here and talk about what the problems are and what they're doing to solve it. And I just feel like I'm talking about how I'm a part. I'm basically talk. I'm complaining, but I'm a part of the problem is what it feels like. Do you mean because you were a pastor's wife at a prominent, mainly white church, your husband was a white male pastor and that even now still you go to white churches, you have a white husband you live in suburban I live Seattle. In a white city. You you have you talked about your different sort of yep. ways of being. You wear your white mask most of the time, mm-hmm. so you feel like you haven't earned the right maybe to speak to white Christians and say, "Here's what I'd like you to know." Is that what is that what you're saying? Yes, and I think more than that, I want colored people to know that being white isn't better. Because I miss, I miss it. I miss the culture so much. I miss the differences of culture, you know. I miss the different foods. Like they would, Korean culture would gather after like each, my God, I'm going to cry. They would gather after like each sermon and all these people would just like cook food for the whole church. Like that was a very common thing to do. I can't speak to white people. And I think part of that is because I've played this role but I can speak to the Asian Americans and say, don't lose it. Don't walk away from it because this this white side is not any more fulfilling or any better. If I could go back, I would stick. I would stay in my people group. <laughs> this is crazy. Isn't that crazy? But you, I mean, could you have married your husband and stayed in your people group? I didn't think it was an option. Could I'd, could you have married the same guy you married? Yeah, but made a concerted effort to go to, to a Korean to church. have yeah. or or at least to just be seriously still enmeshed at least yeah. half the time in like that side of your life. I could have been, I could, and I should have been, but I was really young. I didn't even think through it. I think maybe if I had gotten married a decade later, it would have been different. Yeah, because I would have been already even more so ingrained and had rich relationships throughout my twenties and stuff. And it's almost like, I wonder if they would accept me back. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, I know, I mean, my family is family and they would accept, but like if I went back to my old Korean church and started bringing my kids and my husband, I mean, I peaced out on family, you know? It's not because necessarily they would be so unwilling to accept you, but because you left. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I don't think anyone would ever talk about that. And I think they would say, oh, my God, you're back. Yay. Your kids are so cute. Look how cute your half kids are. Because that's what everyone always says. Your mixed kids are the cutest. They're so beautiful. And they are because they're mixed. I mean, and maybe it would just be in my own heart, but they would be like this underlying like, man, am I ever going to be able to actually like get back in with them, Hmm. with my people? I don't know. I don't I've. I don't know. That's that's some shit. I asked Candace what I asked all of our voters. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm like fighting because man, I know how to answer this. Well, just answer it the way you think it is. Don't don't give me the um, way you think you should well, say. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I know the right way to answer it, and I know that, it, okay, how do I actually feel about this? The gospel of Jesus, I think, is love and acceptance of whoever and wherever that they are at. Um, he, for example, not dining with the prostitutes. And the whatever 
black sheep of the culture. Tax collectors, yeah. et cetera, yeah. <laughs> you know, the da- the tax. <laughs> but for example, even that, like he didn't dine with them to fix them. He dined with them to be with them. And I think that is really powerful in the way that I see Jesus right now. It's like, I don't want to be a part of the club. The rich white club is what some people call it. Any privileged club, privileged club. I don't want that anymore. I also asked her if she considers herself pro-life. What? We're going into these? Oh, gosh, that one's really hard because that's why I voted right for so long. Ever since I was really young. I do consider myself pro-life, yes. What does that term then mean to you? That I hate when babies are aborted. (laughs) I do. I think it's a very sad thing. No matter what situation it is, I think it's sad for the mom. I think it's sad for the family. I think it's sad for the technician. I think it's sad for anybody and everybody who is even standing outside, whatever, holding up their signs. The whole thing to me is just really sad. But I also am not naive and I understand that it's going to continue to happen. And the whole women's rights issue, man, I want to be able to say that I do support women's rights, but then there's still a part in here that I do. I don't. I don't want the babies to die. Um, so it's complicated. for It's you. complicated for me. If you could, you know, I'm not. You're not. A, I know you're not a policy expert, nor am I. But if you could sort of say, if you could have your druthers, and next month, this would be the policy about all things related to abortion, abortion, um, or whatever you would consider under a pro-life umbrella. If you could just sort of. And it doesn't matter what party, they're going to agree. How would you envision that? I would envision it that it's not so easy to get an abortion. Okay. Um, That there is, I would hope that there is a lot of therapy and counseling involved. Would you like that to be paid for by the government or that people would have to pay for it themselves or... Yeah. Yes, I would want both of it. Okay. Um, reason being, oh, I wouldn't want the quality of care to go down because it's mm-hmm. government, but I also would want people to pay for it themselves so they value it. So they value it, you know. Maybe subsidized. I mean, this is this is why policy is hard, right? Yeah. Here we are. We 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 don't even have any voters to convince, and mm-hmm. we're having a hard time. I know, I know. So maybe some like subsidized, but yeah. it costs people something. Yeah. But it's easy to get therapy. Okay, what else? I would want, <laughs> I would want family to know about it. You even know if I mean? they're over even, eighteen. Well, maybe not that. Maybe okay. if maybe if eighteen twenty one. Maybe if that. Because I do think by then women understand the consequence of keeping a secret to themselves and it eats them up more than it eats anybody else up. Maybe not even like giving the parents the um, power to decide for them, but just kind of a transparency policy of like, Hey, your minor has approached us regarding this. Let's say she's 13 and not even to change their minds, but more so that she would have support either way that she chooses. But I also know that would be really freaking complicated. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of parents who, I mean, everyone has an agenda, right? Are there any other policy platforms that are not specifically related to abortion Mm -hmm. that you would like to be included in a pro-life stance? Maternity, paternity leave. Yeah. I would love that. Government sponsored. Oh, or mandatory or employees or employers have to pay for a certain job. Yeah. I I know that people with small businesses would answer differently. That doesn't come out of my pocket, but how cool would that be, man? If like families can actually stay together after the babies are born, it would be Mm -hmm. so healthy for the mom and the dad and the babies. My understanding is there's pretty ample studies that support what you just said. I mean, other countries do it. Why can't we? I think we are one of the last developed countries to not yeah. have that. What do you love about America? What do I love about America? Yeah, or, or what makes America a good place to live or whatever. Oh, what do I love about America? K 
Candace is like just glowing and leaning back on the chair. Oh, no. Her arms are crossed. <laughs> She's just looking up. What do I love about America? <laughs> I wish you guys could see this. I don't think I have been enough places to think that America's the best. Okay. So I'm not I'm not claiming that America is. I'm not I'm not asking you why is America is. the best country in the world. I'm just saying. And honestly, what's good about the it. very first thing that came into mind was all the different foods you can get. That's a huge reason. For I me. freaking the different cuisines you can get is just like <gasps> Thai food, Korean food, Mexican food. You know, like Greek food. I actually think the food reason is a little underexamined because yeah. I think the food it is related to a much more fundamental fact, mm -hmm. which is that people of literally an infinite number of cultures can coexist here. Yeah. And and that's why you get the food. Yeah. Plus like capitalism or something, you know? Yeah. So it isn't, I mean, I love to eat the food, of course. I mean, anybody who's seen me in person can tell, but also <laughs> it does get at something deeper. I don't think a food is a dumb reason. I think food is probably my number one reason that if that's allowed, I don't, I don't want another, I don't want you to give another reason. I'm I just not, want to only put this reason. Yeah. In there. The food. Candace says the food. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. We're looking forward to having Ellen back next week. And next week, we're going to be taking a little break from these voters episodes, and we're going to ask the question that most plagued me personally since before the election. Are Christian voters really gullible? Do they really believe that Trump is a Christian or that he is a baby Christian or came to faith? Do they believe Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham when they go on Fox News or CNN? We're going to dive into that question with various experts to help us, like John Ward from Yahoo News, also Dr. Daryl Hart, who is an expert in the history of evangelicalism in the United States. And we play a bunch of interesting news clips of Falwell and Trump and Graham and, and all those guys, the good old boys. And we really try to answer that question. Do we think that they were gullible or not? And of course, we will also hear a bit from our Trump voters on that question. So that episode turned out really great. We're looking forward to playing it for you. So come back next week. And again, you can support this show on Patreon, patreon.com slash depolarize. If you want to get in touch with me, depolarizepodcast at gmail.com. And there's also a Facebook discussion group. I haven't talked a lot about that this season, but it's still going strong. Just search on Facebook for Depolarize Podcast or Depolarize Podcast Discussion Group, and you can join. Tierney Edwards will add you. She's an admin on the group, and join the conversation. We also have an official thread on there for every episode in case you want to talk about it with other members of the group. All right, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much.